You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Very little competition. We're tired of not knowing what the prices are because the hospitals are so large. They're mega industry entities that don't even know what things are going to cost. They've got different pricing relationships with each of the insurance carriers. If you don't have insurance, it's even higher cost because there's no discounts involved. The system is a mess. And what we've been trying to do over the last several weeks is to try to create a new system, a consumer-oriented system, a patient-directed, a patient-centric system. And I think we've laid out some very good, very strong case for a private market solution that meets all those conditions and can have a beneficial impact on each and every one of the American lives that are covered for insurance and need health care when they need it, where they need it, and by whom they want to provide it. So we've come down this session to talking about the core of the uninsurables. We've already talked in previous sessions how people who are insurable can get care and coverage. They either pass an underwriting standard set by insurance companies and they get their coverage at a mutually agreed upon contract rate, coverage, and pricing. Or if they're unfairly rejected for coverage, a new entity that we've described, Health Review Authority, would look at all the data and statistics and decide whether or not somebody is truly uninsurable or if they're really insurable and should get coverage at some fair price. If they are insurable and should get coverage at some fair price, they will be given a certificate of guaranteed coverage where the insurance industry, the participants in this new system, would be required to give them coverage at an affordable rate with limitations that are minimized, if any are needed at all, and at a pricing that is not that different from standard rates. So what we really get down to and what we talked about in enormous detail last week was the Impaired Health Support Group. And I mentioned several times over the last several weeks, for those of you who may not have had a chance to go back and listen to the previous weeks, the Impaired Health Support Plan, some might give it parallel to the old high-risk pools. But if you've listened to the program it's actually the opposite of that. In the old days, the high-risk pool, pre-Obamacare, shunted people off into poor coverage, high cost. And we really didn't want to have them covered in a system. Uh, the insurance companies wanted them just out of the way. What we're talking about now under this system is not only all those benefits I described earlier, but coverage that helps the sickest among us. If as a society we can't help the sickest among us, get coverage. When we are in greatest need, we're going to be in that forgotten group. So we have to provide for the very sickest among us. And instead of calling them high risk, because nobody wants to be a high risk, but if we have an impaired health status, we want impaired health support to get us through, to stabilize us, to give us the guidance and direction and support with our physicians so that we can be compliant with uh, care and treatment plans if we need mental health services to be able to uh, deal with our condition, to be compliant with our medications, then that all is provided as well. 
So what we really want to talk about today, we want to get into, are once we get into the impaired health support plan, what kind of potential coverage options are available? What kind of coverages can we see in the marketplace for this impaired health support group? Because it's not, we're going to shove everybody into a one-size-fits-all. That was the problem with Obamacare. Everybody is different. Just because you are uninsurable doesn't mean you're going to have high costs. You might just have a condition that is risky, but if you take your medication, you do the right things, you follow your doctor's orders, you're not going to have any costs that are greater than just the average person. But clearly, if you've got a chronic and persistent condition and you don't stabilize yourself, then you can have very high costs. So what we want to do is allow people who have different conditions that have different potential costs themselves that they can choose the plan that best meets their needs. So the impaired health support group will have multiple options similar to any large employer group. Typically, large groups have several comprehensive major medical plans with options for coverage under an HMO, a PPO, an HSA eligible plan, and even HRA options. The impaired health support group can include these as well as more limited coverage options. The applicant will have a choice of plans that best suits their needs and interests. Comprehensive major medical plans provide health care services which an enrolled population might reasonably require in order to maintain good health, including as a minimum, but not restricted to, preventive care, emergency care, inpatient hospital care, physician care, outpatient medical services, mental health, and behavioral health services, and prescription drugs, just to mention a number of categories that would normally be included in comprehensive major medical plans. Participants in the Impaired Health Support Plan will have all of the resources available in the private market. Plans embracing consumer empowerment include at least the five following features in any plan design. It'll include personal accounts, flexible spending accounts, health reimbursement arrangements, and health savings accounts. Those are typically categorized under personal care accounts. Two, wellness prevention and early intervention programs. So these are health programs that any large employer has to help keep their population, their employees, their plan members healthy. Those should be available in any impaired health support plan. Third, and maybe most important for this particular uh, category of um, patients, is it would have disease or condition management and case management programs to help those with chronic and persistent conditions, those with major uh, health problems, which is why they are uninsurable and why they're in this impaired health support plan. So they need to get all the resources to help them stabilize their condition and hopefully some level of recovery. A good example of this is if somebody is diabetic, they are uninsurable in all likelihood. Now, but they don't have to be high cost. If you don't take care of yourself, if you don't change your lifestyle, don't take your medication, uh, a diabetic can go blind, um, lose their feet, uh, have all sorts of rehospitalizations to take care of their diabetes. But if they stabilize themselves, change their medication, uh, change their, their diet, uh, 
they can be stabilized, not necessarily have costs that are much higher than the average person. The fourth area of support in any plan design should be what I refer to as health literacy. That is information and decision support programs that help them decide what is going to be best for them, whether it's the plan selection process or once they've selected a plan, what are some of the things they can do to minimize their costs? What are some of the things they could do to get rewards and incentives that might be available under that plan? And so the fifth one is that the plan should, in fact, have incentive and compliance reward programs. If they're doing the right things to stay out of the hospital, it's what I call share save, shared savings. So that if a plan member is doing the right things and stabilizing themselves, they should be able to get some rewards and incentives to reinforce that uh, activity. Now, the personal savings accounts that we uh, talked about just a second ago are attached to an eligible health plan. This is the main component of a consumerism model and drives the value for the other four criteria we mentioned just above. There are a variety of health plans and personal savings account plans that can be offered under the impaired health support coverages. On the wellness programs, they provide incentives for positive, healthy behaviors. Health improvement wellness programs provide consumers opportunities to improve their health and engage in positive lifestyles that could stabilize and or prevent future diseases. Health improvement incentive programs also offer plan members a chance to save money in personal savings accounts by reducing the need for health services. On the condition disease management programs, the reason some of the language that you hear in the industry is about condition management is that obesity is not a disease, it's a condition. So we typically put these two together, disease and condition management programs. And they can help patients manage chronic and persistent conditions such as diabetes, asthma, cardiovascular disease that cause health problems and increased costs. Advocates of healthcare consumerism contend that saving lives, improving health, and lowering costs for this population of patients is the strength and value of a well-structured consumerism empowerment plan. This is kind of the holy grail of where the savings can occur because most of the costs in healthcare come from people with chronic and persistent conditions, especially those who don't maintain themselves, don't follow the doctor's orders, and don't even follow up on their own disease diagnoses. And many times they don't go to a doctor until it's far too late. So it's this area that can really improve the cost of health care across the board. Now let's talk about the health literacy and decision support tools. They provide consumers with information on things like pricing of all services, including providers, facilities, and medications. Evidence-based care for medical interventions and prescribed treatments and provide options for medical care and alternatives to treatment. So getting an understanding, knowing your health and health care choices to help you make better decisions is what the health literacy and decision support tools are all about. And most large employers have these tools available. These have been developed by the industry and are fantastic ways to get a more educated population around health and health care decision-making. 
account-based plans, HSA eligible plans, and HRAs are ideal designs that can be used to reinforce consumer engagement and empowerment. Impaired health support coverages will have multiple plan options, much like large employer groups. Well, this segment of the program went pretty fast. You can tell I'm kind of passionate about being sure that any system that we develop, that we promote, that we describe, that we structure, is going to help the very sickest among us. That's the way we have a successful uh, health reform, health insurance reform, and health care reform system. So let's go to commercial, and we'll be right back with Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to this segment of Healthcare Insight. I'm Ron Bachman on America's Web Radio. We've been talking about reforming the healthcare system to create a private free market. And we're down to describing some of the details about how to help the sickest among us and what I've referred to as the impaired health support group. We talked about in general the types of benefits that would be available, the options, the choices, much like a large employer would have uh, many options for its its uh, employees and plan members to choose from. But, well, you know, one of the areas that I've been asked a lot about, because it's been so popular, especially with large employers, and as people have come to use and know family members and friends who have HSA-eligible plans, they want to know, does this include health savings accounts? Well, clearly the answer is a resounding yes. There will be HSA-eligible plans as options in the Impaired Health Support Plan. Now, if you're coming from an employer plan that's contributing to an HSA, that same employer under this structure would be making similar contributions to the impaired health support HSA option that is chosen as they would as if the employer employee was still in the employer's plan. So there would be contributions from the employer and then also the employee or plan member now in the impaired health support plan could add additional funds uh, as allowed under HSA eligible plans. So the employers contributing to HSAs normally would continue to contribute to HSAs for individuals accepted into the HSA eligible plans under the impaired health support coverage. The plans with health reimbursement arrangements, those would be available only to individuals accepted into the impaired health support plan from employer-sponsored plans contributing to HRAs. Now, without getting too much into the details, HRAs uh, amounts can only be contributed by an employer, unlike HSAs, where both the employer and the employee can contribute into an HSA. So even though, again, to reinforce, the idea that we are now setting up an impaired health support coverage that is an HSA-eligible plan, that the individuals coming from a group plan because they are uninsurable, a small group plan, under 50 lives, where the employer is in fact contributing to HSAs for their employees, that individual is being pulled out and put into an impaired health support coverage so that the experience, the claims of that individual are no longer a part of that employer's group. However, the funding of claims, both the premium contributions and any HSA contributions to their regular employees who remain in their plan, 
If they're doing that, the same amounts would be paid into the impaired health support plan on behalf of the employee who has been shifted into the impaired health support. So as long as that employer is doing that for the remaining employees, they would do it for the individual who has come out of that plan and been put into an HSA eligible plan in the impaired health support uh, uh, coverage. So an example of what an HSA eligible plan in the impaired health support coverage might include is the following. The plan design would be using federal HSA eligible plan requirements. We provide a choice of plans with deductibles, maximum out-of-pocket amounts, and coverage maximums from $250,000 to unlimited. Now, that gives a lot of different options to people who are being moved into the impaired health support for all the services to help them with their health care needs and issues. Uh, they can choose whatever they want. Uh, so this is just an outline of what's possible to show that, in fact, there's going to be choices of plans. We're going to for- we will not force everyone under this design into uh, a one-size-fits-all. As far as the health management issues we talked about, early intervention, prevention, um, they would provide an HSA contribution or a deductible credit of $250 for each condition satisfied as meeting health medical standards of body mass index, blood pressure, cholesterol, nicotine use, those types of health status. If individuals would, in fact, maintain a healthy metric for those health status, then the plan design in the impaired health support could provide a deductible credit, either a reduction in the deductible that would otherwise apply or maybe a contribution into an HSA. So it's a way for somebody after they choose the plan to, in fact, cover what otherwise might be an out-of-pocket cost for a deductible or a copayment. It would allow the individual stabilizing their condition, doing the right things, trying to stay healthy to get an incentive to do that. On the condition management, um, disease and condition management program, again, there would be compliance awards and rewards for participation and outcomes. So, again, if you're doing the right things, taking your medication, following your doctor's orders, there would be metrics set up that would allow, again, additional contributions into an HSA or other types of incentives to reinforce the kind of behaviors we want to lower the overall cost and improve the health of those individuals. As far as HSA amounts, the potential for federal and or state initial contributions exists. Also, HSA amounts be open to employer, individual, and charity contributions. States could even make compliance awards based upon improved health outcomes and shared savings since the state would have some risk in the level of costs under the impaired health support plan, as would the federal government. So they could make contributions as well. As far as the distribution system, how we sell this product, how we encourage people to move into the impaired health support plans, it's mainly through direct individual and small group applications to the Health Risk Authority. We've described how that process would work in previous sessions. But it also can be agents and brokers or even faith-based outreach and identification, those who want to help 
the sickest among us and identify what their needs are and get them into an impaired health support plan. So the different ways people might ultimately be engaged um, with the health review authority in order to determine whether or not they are truly uninsurable and would get this kind of subsidized coverage. As far as the administration, administration of the impaired health support plan, I see as being outsourced to one or more insurers based uh, with provider discount networks, uh, best of practice wellness and disease condition management programs, enrollment capabilities, account management, and integration of programs through a general manager or health plan integrator. All this can be done in a number of ways. Um, One model might even be, for those who are familiar with it, is the way the uh, Federal Employee Health Benefit Plan works, that there's a sharing of that risk and that coverage and the premiums and the claims and administration across multiple insurers with one insurer acting as a as the uh, integrator of that process and the maintaining of all the administration and data. So there's a number of ways the administration uh, can be handled, whether it's by one or by a consortium of, uh, of carriers. Let's go back to that um, earlier discussion in our previous session on the comprehensive major medical. First of all, let's make it clear. There is no industry standard definition of comprehensive major medical. But for purposes of our discussion and any proposed legislation, comprehensive major medical insurance means a plan with at least 1 million overall lifetime maximum reimbursement. Now, under Obamacare, it's required to be uh, unlimited, and that may be the ultimate way legislation is developed. But for the purposes of discussion here, we're saying it's at least a million dollars. And it is a cost-sharing out-of-pocket maximum no greater than that applicable to, in any given year to HSA-eligible plans as defined in the federal codes. So that limits the exposure that an individual would have to out-of-pocket costs. Now, that amount is um, annually indexed, so there's an increase each year. But again, if the individual is doing the right things, they can actually cover the underlying costs and any annual increasing if they're they're getting rewards and incentives, and that's part of the program. Finally, inexpensive plan options will also be available for those wanting more limited insurance coverage. Choice in plans for those with impaired health support is as important as coverage for anyone else. The main common element of all plans is universal access to a wide range of medical and decision support services. So what we really have here is a system that's going to protect the sickest among us. I keep saying that over and over again because I really believe that that is the core. People who are uninsurable need to be able to get coverage for their pre-existing conditions. People who are insurable and have some pre-existing conditions also need to be sure that they can get affordable coverage. And if the insurance company is not playing the game right of treating their application fairly, then there is something that we've described as a certificate of guaranteed coverage. It levels the playing field between the consumer trying to make a purchase and the insurance industry, which today and in the past has held all the cards as to whether or not somebody uh, is going to be allowed 
to have coverage. Well, it shouldn't be a matter of whether you're allowed to have coverage. You should have coverage one way or another at a fair price. And it shouldn't be a unilateral power struggle with the insurance industry having all of the cards. So what we've done is level a playing field with the certificate of guaranteed coverage, which if you want to find out more, listen to one of the previous uh, podcasts that are available on americaswebradio.com or on Health Insights, Insight, Health Insight without the S, healthinsight.net. Wow. We've talked about an awful lot over the last several weeks about how to structure and strategize around a private free market system. But if you're jumping into this and hearing this podcast for the first time, uh, let me be clear about how you can go back and pick up the other details of the design and structure. If all this sounds interesting to you, if all of it even sounds improbable, but you want to understand how it actually can work, because it really does, I would give you directions in a couple of ways. The first way is go to americaswebradio.com. And if you go to that website, click under Programs, then click under Thursday at 11 a.m., which is when this broadcast for Healthcare Insight is presented. And that will take you to a biography uh, of my background. You need to scroll down to the bottom of that biography, and it will have each of the different weeks from the very first week we've been broadcasting so you can listen to any of those and get a full understanding of all the concepts and you can get educated. If you're an elected official, it outlines the entire structure. The second is to go to healthcareinsight.net and it'll have more educational materials there. It'll also have each of the segments in its uh, 13 to 14 minute segments so you can just absorb it, the podcast in bite-sized pieces. So I encourage you to go to either one of those to sort of pick up and reinforce uh, the background. So let's take a break now. We'll be right back on America's Web Radio with Healthcare Insight. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Well, let's take the next step. One of the questions I keep getting is, how do you make this a voluntary system and allow people to just come in and go out if there's a guaranteed issue? How does that all work within MAGA Health? Well, the reality is there has to be a cost to voluntarily being uninsured. If you're going to have a system of covering pre-existing conditions, guaranteed issue, you're getting coverage one way or another. Either through the insurance company, you're getting a certificate of guaranteed coverage, or you're getting covered in the um, uh, impaired health um, support group. So if somebody wants to be voluntarily uninsured, we have to provide some mechanism to have them pay a little bit of their fair share or to have a penalty for not being insured. Now, Obamacare did this, and it was very controversial because the penalty was a tax penalty. People had to pay something extra on top of their taxes where they had their refunds uh, reduced. And that was the incentive to make people, especially young people, who really didn't want insurance uh, because they were healthy, uh, they had to pay a penalty. 
Well, the other problem with the young people and penalties was that the way Obamacare was structured, unlike MAGA Health that we've been describing, the young people were put into the same risk pool as everybody else and were actually charged about 50% more under the Obamacare requirements for how premiums had to be structured by age. Well, we've removed that premium structure by age. Some call that price compression, where there was only allowed to be a three-to-one ratio between the lowest and the highest. So what happened was that the young people had their premiums raised. Well, MAGA Health provides affordable options, which will lower the cost and the number of uninsured while allowing a voluntary choice for anyone who wants to remain uninsured. When all is said and done in a voluntary system, there will always be those who choose not to be insured. Those individuals may be healthy and consider any insurance premiums as unnecessary expenses. I don't really want that coverage. I don't need that coverage. Just go away and don't worry about me because I'm not going to get sick. Well, a lot, there's a lot of young and healthy and, you know, they can move mountains. But ultimately, uh, we're all going to get sick. Something's going to happen, uh, either the lifestyle uh, accident, uh, some illness that befalls somebody that they didn't expect. There's all sorts of possibilities of how anybody, even young people who think they're young and healthy, actually will get sick and need uh, medical care. But just like there is a 100% probability that we will all die at some point, everyone will need health care. When health care is ultimately needed by the uninsured, then any present condition, illness, or accident will be considered a pre-existing condition. The only insurance option at that point, of course, will be the impaired health support group. So it's only fair that people who decide to be uninsured sort of take the ultimate catastrophic coverage, if you will, and that is provide some support for the impaired health support group, which is the area that they're going to be in most need of. If something catastrophic happens to them, they don't have insurance, um, the impaired health support group is the only real option for them. So under MAGA Health, during the period of being uninsured, individuals will lose all or a portion of their personal or family income tax exemption. So they're not required to pay more. They're just going to get less deductions on their federal income tax. And some of these people, young and healthy, don't have any federal income tax, or they don't have much value for the personal deductions because they really don't have any taxes. In any case, these funds will be used to support the existence and the availability of the impaired health support group for those who eventually are going to be using the impaired health support group because they chose to be voluntarily uninsured. The process to do this is as follows. With that reduction in the personal or family income tax exemption, the state and or the IRS, Department of Revenue, will calculate the increased income tax from returns showing the cost of exemptions and submit some percentage. I choose the number 80% of that tax amount to cover claims and other expenses of the impaired health support coverage. That's the way it works. It's fairly simple. A simple concept. If you decide not to be insured, 
the one very catastrophic option is to retain the viability of the impaired health support group. Now, we would hope those people actually would buy some insurance, even if it's a catastrophic insurance policy, to help protect themselves. But at the end of the day, they're going to have additional costs of some type or other, and they can get coverage in the impaired health support group. Well, let's back up for a second now and fill in some gaps. We've gone through enormous detail on the process of MAGA Health on the process of getting insurance. Well, let's just take a couple of minutes and both review and highlight for those of you who have been listening to these broadcasts, it's all been coming together. It's logical. It makes sense. Things connect to make a logical program and overall strategy for providing a private free market health insurance system. Let's take a look at all that we've said and see if it's matched up with the basic principles that any such system should have. Well, the first basic principle has to be consumer empowerment. Consumer empowerment includes knowledgeable consumers and patients with access to guaranteed issue affordable comprehensive health insurance with coverage of pre-existing conditions. We have met that. Check. That one is done. Consumer empowerment, whether it's with a comprehensive plan or the plan of the choice. But the bottom line is we have empowered the consumer, both with the coverage and the ability to access health insurance by leveling the playing field between the consumer and an insurance carrier. Voluntary participation. Individuals and employers should not be forced or mandated to secure health insurance. Insurer's participation in MAGA Health is also voluntary, but the market advantages we've discussed of MAGA Health would not be available to those insurers not participating. Again, check this one off the list. Voluntary. Are there some penalties for not being insured? Yes, we just talked about that. Are there some penalties for insurers not participating? Well, most of those penalties are the lack of a competitive market it product because they won't have the advantages of the lower cost of the remaining population of small groups. And they won't have the advantage of being able to sell individual policies in the same way uh, participating companies would. Three, personal responsibility. Personal responsibility means consumers and patients taking ownership for the good and bad health and health care decisions. Again, check this one off. MAGA Health includes a lot of personal responsibility. We offer rewards and incentives. You can lower the cost of care by following your doctor's orders, by taking the personal responsibility to take your medication, to change your lifestyle, to try to stay healthy, and if you're not healthy, to try to stabilize your condition. All that is done within the MAGA Health. Another basic principle, choice. Choice means personal decision options for insurance coverage, medical care, treatment plans, providers, compliance, participation, lifestyle options, wellness activities, disease, conditions, support programs, service conveniences, and education sources. Consumers ought to have all those choices. So it's not just the choice of what doctor I go to, what hospital I'm able to 
uh, be admitted to. There are all sorts of choices. And again, MAGA Health has laid this out in detail. We give power to the consumer. We educate the consumer. And the consumer has lots of choices, both in the selection of products and how their coverage actually is implemented during the year and how they interact with the positive nature of the coverages to get rewards and incentives. So again, choice, unlimited choice under MAGA Health, unlike the marketplace today. Well, the real critical one, is it market-based? Have we described appropriately a legal and regulatory system that allows an open, competitive private health insurance industry? Well, we certainly have. We've gone into probably more detail than many people would want to hear, and maybe it sounded like uh, too much in the weeds at times. But I wanted to be sure that we could talk about the legal and regulatory system, because that's not so easy. It's real easy to regulate market. It's not so easy to establish the framework, the dynamics, the balancing of power between consumers and individuals, between the insurance industry and the government regulatory or uh, moderating forces in the marketplace to create a fair and equal market. Increased competition. How we describe a system that would increase competition. Certainly a robust competition in an open free market is the best solution to lower prices. Better services provided, higher quality, greater convenience, and more choices. If we can actually set up the system as we've described, we could also encourage new entrants. The problem with increased competition in many areas is that, especially on the insurance side, there's consolidation, so there are fewer choices. There's greater dominance. There's greater marketing power. And they get unfair advantages in many ways of getting price discounts just because of their size. So that a startup company um, is squeezed out of the marketplace. We've got to be able to create a marketplace where new entrants are able to come in. Because the real issue of competition is no insurance company, no hospital system, no doctor, no vendor out there providing services in the medical area, medical care or insurance area, they won't change and recognize the consumer as the real power until they lose customers. And when you have dominance in both the insurance industry and in the healthcare marketplace, hospitals consolidating, physicians selling off their practices to hospital systems, there's no competition. There's no place to go. You try to get a competitive price on an MRI and everybody is owned by the same entities. You really don't get the kind of increased competition. That's one of the key areas that we really need uh, to change the marketplace is establish a structure that supports and encourages increased competition. Well, we're at the end of the segment. Before we go into the next segment, let's take a quick break, go to commercial, and we'll be right back. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. I'm Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. 
Well, for this last segment, let's wrap up the list, the checklist of whether or not we've actually discussed and structured a system that meets the original basic principles that we outlined for a private free market health system. So following up on our last segment, the next item I would identify is ownership. Ownership means consumer possession of financial assets, choices of how to spend personal care funds, and the right to information regarding one's own health and health records. Well, again, I think you can check this one off the list. What we've tried to design and and describe is how those options, those plan options, that include personal care accounts, those are financial assets that are not under the control of the insurance company, they're not under the control of government, they're not under the control of employers. They are assets that are owned by the consumer. The patient can use them to their own benefit and how they're going to pay for and finance health care, services that they want that somebody else might say, well, you don't need that service, you don't need that test, you don't need to check out this, but for you as an individual, it might be really important. It may be that you want to do some genetic testing that otherwise isn't covered by your insurance plan, but you've got the funds, you've got the financial assets under a health savings account that you can actually do that without having to beg somebody else. So the ownership aspect of MAGA Health is critical. Check that one off the list. Now, what about portability? We all worry about portability. And in the past, one of the big concerns about pre-Obamacare healthcare was that it wasn't portable. We had too much reliance on employer-sponsored health plans, where if you change your job, you might lose your coverage. Well, portability allows individuals to continue coverage regardless of employment status and or job changes. So what we've done with MAGA Health is a couple of things. One, for those people who buy individual policies, we made it more affordable. Because we've removed that price compression for young people, young people who might be more apt at the beginning of their careers to change jobs frequently, now have the option to buy insurance that would stay with them regardless of whether or not they change jobs. So the policies do not rely on employer-based insurance, and that those individual policies should be encouraged and expanded. In addition, for those who are the sickest among us that are going into the impaired health support coverage, we've described that as a group plan, not individual policies, but a group plan for the main reason that group uh the group side of any insurance company usually has a lot more features to help people who are suffering from chronic and persistent conditions, suffering from rare maladies, and those services can be brought to play, and they are put into a group plan so that if that person that may be working, may not be working, they may not be working, but later on go to work, they stabilize themselves. They've been able to have some level of recovery. They don't have to worry about losing that coverage they can stay in the impaired health support group plan because that's a group that's not an employer group. It's a very special group of people who have had health conditions that made them uninsurable. So as they recover, as they stabilize themselves, they can stay in that group and they don't have to worry about losing coverage if they change or get a new job. 
Now, what about transparency? Well, you know, that's a term that I personally don't really like. Um, maybe people are starting to understand it more. But the issue of transparency can be debated. Many companies now, many insurance companies, many hospital systems, even doctors, they can't tell you what the cost of services are. Many of them don't want to tell you what it is, even if they could. The main reason is they want to say, well, that's proprietary information. I can't tell you that I'm only paying this insurance company X dollars, and now you have to pay uh, a higher number. But if you turn that around, instead of wherever you would normally use transparency, you talk about the consumer's right to know. I have a right to know what the costs are. I have a right to know if you're charging somebody else less than me. I have a right to know if your quality of care is better or worse than another provider that I might want to go to. So transparency can relate to a lot of things. It can relate to cost, quality, and even treatment options. I should know that there are other options. That just because you're a, uh, a surgeon, the answer shouldn't always be surgery. Well, there's got to be other options. Sometimes there's medication. Sometimes there's lifestyle changes. Sometimes there is surgery. Sometimes there are other options. And consumers ought to have all that. Have we set up a system that allows for that? Probably not as complete as I would like, but we've begun the process of setting up a system that would be uh, allow a consumer to be more informed. And if we increase areas like competition, we're more likely to get more transparency. If we empower the consumer the way MAGA Health does, the demands of the consumer would be such that, that those uh, pieces of information, the transparency of cost, quality, and treatment options become uh, more prevalent. You know, when I was in the consulting environment for many years, and we got a new project, I'd always say, who's paying the bill? Is it the human resource director? Is it the CFO? Is it the CEO? Who's paying the bill? Because whoever pays the bill is the real consumer. That's whose need you focus on. Well, in healthcare, too often, it's not the consumer, the patient, that's paying the bill. We have a third-party reimbursement system. And what MAGA Health tries to do is recognize that we need a pooling of risk for high costs for everybody. And we have options for covering uh, lower costs if that's what consumers want. But at the end of the day, we want the consumer to be empowered with as much financial responsibility as possible and help them to finance it with rewards and incentives and savings and those sorts of things so that the consumer is seen to be the real customer in the healthcare marketplace. And I'm not sure that that is, well, I'm certain it's not the way it is today, but MAGA Health will again improve that area. So check that one off. Finally, the use of technology, health Healthcare and health insurance all need expanded use of technology to lower the cost, improve efficiency and effectiveness of coverages, and appropriately identify and distribute information. Now, in every other industry, technology tends to lower costs, but it doesn't seem to work that way in healthcare. There's so many new inventions, creations, and implementations of technology that it just always seems to increase the cost. Well, this is the one area where the use of technology, I think, is getting to the point where we're able to do things like telemedicine. We're able to do uh, even apps on our telephones. 
we're able to do artificial intelligence. We're able to take better use of predictive modeling, uh, big data sources to try to do analytics around people's genomes and to give them better choices and options. So certainly the use of technology can lower costs. It has not been the path that technology has taken in terms of cost control or alternatives in health or health care, or certainly hasn't even worked on trying to offer up better health insurance. So I think this is an area that needs a lot of work. I think it's one that uh, technology to lower costs is coming into play. But to this point, most of the technology has been to increase the quality of care or the convenience of care and has tended to um, increase the cost. Well, let's talk about now expected outcomes. After we put all this together, what kind of outcomes can we expect from MAGA Health? Well, a MAGA Health insurance system, based upon the principles we've been describing, I believe it's clear that we can achieve the following outcomes. One, transformation. If followed, the principles established will lead to an effective and smooth transition from a dying Obamacare system while maintaining most of the positive aspects of the Affordable Care Act. So it gives gives us an avenue, a bridge to transform from a government oversight, government over-regulated system of Obamacare into a private free market. Two, consumer engagement. We talked about that as number one basic principle. Engagement will come from financial ownership, health literacy, decision support tools, and information sharing. So we will get much more in consumer engagement. Three, behavioral change, not cost shifting. MAGA Health isn't about cost shifting to the employer, to the consumer, to the insurance company. It's about behavioral change. The consumer empowerment and engagement leads to behavioral change. Behavioral change includes wellness, prevention, early intervention, compliance with proven care and treatments. It's about plans encouraging personal involvement, well-being, and altering health and healthcare purchasing behaviors. Affordability. Affordability is not just about the premium dollars one pays for out-of-pocket costs. Affordability is also achieved with the financial rewards and incentives earned through healthy choices and behavioral changes. So we change the idea of affordability. It's not just about premiums. It's about what you do after the fact, after you choose a plan and you participate in the different ways that you can lower your cost after the purchase with rewards and incentives, shared savings, if you will. Five, in the... Expected outcomes. Will we maximize financial options? Well, yes. The financial options for health claims should consist of three parts. We've talked about it before. Personal budgeting for premiums or minor health costs. Third-party reimbursements, that's your insurance. And savings, personal savings or tax-advantaged HSAs, HRAs, or FSAs. Six, insurance for the sickest. If there's one item I would emphasize that we've tried to do over and over again, that's provide insurance under MAGA Health for the sickest among us. No one can be left behind. Health insurance is about financial security when sickness or accidents strike. MAGA Health will help the sickest patients with impaired health conditions 
get the best care, the best treatment, and understanding of their condition through financial and information empowerment. This is the one critical area that Obamacare left out, that pre-Obamacare didn't try to do, and now MAGA Health is really focusing on how do we help the sickest among us. Seven, eliminate the diversity of outcomes, whether it's social, racial, geographical, or other categories. The diversity of outcomes can only be addressed once the segmentation of an existing health insurance system is eliminated and Americans are covered in the same system, treated by the same provider groups, and empowered with the same information and decision support tools. And finally, the expected outcomes. It's what I call holistic care. W-H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C, holistic care. There are four aspects of human life, physical, mental, spiritual, and social. Health should be viewed as a dynamic state of well-being within an individual that includes physical, mental, social, and spiritual balance. A focus on health recognizes the potential to improve the status of an individual in need regardless of their diagnosis or condition. So these are the things that we can expect. We've laid out basic principles. We've identified uh, likely outcomes from all this. And now we've really set up a system that I hope you agree as we've gone through it. And we're going to talk about a little bit more in the details yet to come on how this operates, mainly for legislators who want to write legislation. But for the most part, we've laid it out. So I hope you come back next week and find out even more about how we create a private free market health system And you'll find it all at America's Web Radio on this program, Healthcare Insight. See you next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.